welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Welcome back to Clean Tech Talks. I'm your host, Michael Bernard. This is the second half of my conversation with Michelle Wooker, international best-selling author of The Grey Rhino and We Are What We Risk. Yeah, so let's tear it apart. I'm going to try and paraphrase very briefly. What I'm hearing you say and what I remember from the books is the risk fingerprint is an individual's perceptions of the variance in risks Risk empathy is understanding that your perception of risk is not necessarily theirs and attempting to understand what their perception of the risk is. So, and I'll, I'll give you some examples. And I, I was laughing to myself, would I ever, would I play this card? I'm going to play this card. So here's me. I've ridden motorcycles at over 200 kilometers, 130, 140 kilometers per hour. I've uh, dropped into black diamond bowls at Whistler Blackcomb on snowboards. I've windsurfed in snowstorms. I've paraglided the southern cliffs of Valley. I've played Texas Hold'em in probably half a dozen or a dozen casinos around North America. And I'm also, a big part of my career was a risk management professional in major technological transformation projects. So how do you square that risk profile where obviously I'm a, you know, an extreme sports junkie and risked myself a lot? But I also brought a very stern and rigorous risk management approach. And I trained people in risk management around technology projects. And I applied methodologies that minimized risk. And I avoided fat tail risks and all those types of things, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. But it's interesting, right? You know, it's a weird risk, it's a weird risk fingerprint I've got. And so people look at me and say, this guy's reckless. And no, you bring this out in the book. You actually talk about extreme sports people. And you say, these are people who have trained themselves and have deep knowledge and gained an understanding of their and increased their skills to the point where they can take those risks with reasonable safety. Like I didn't break anything doing any of those sports, for example, came close. But, you know, so it's kind of different, right? And other people like my, my good friends of mine are like very risk averse in some ways. But they've also got very different other things they take lots of risks in, which I won't get into because there's all sorts of interesting subjects. You must have had some fascinating conversations. Guilty. Privately. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's it's interesting. Different people have differences in how they perceive exactly the same transaction from a risk perspective. And I'm going to lean into Kahneman a bit here. So you must have read Thinking Fast and Slow at some point. I don't know if you quote them or not, but I'm thinking, so there's prospect theory, which is the variance between your perception of negative risk and your, and your perception of positive risk, right? Because you get into that and it's like risk is, oh, risk means also good stuff. I take this risk and there's an upside, but Kahneman's prospect theory, what do you want a Nobel prize for? says we are more averse to losing than we are. We weight that more than we weight gaining unless you train yourself out of it as uh, day traders do, as Texas Hold'em poker players do, you kind of 
train, you can train yourself to have a better perception of those risks. The second thing he says, which is interesting, I think I want to test this with you, is that he articulates that when people have less or nothing, they'll take massive risks. And I, I look at the United States, and I look at relative wage stagnation for 80% of the populace, degrading life expectancies, degrading social mobility, higher Gini indices, uh, especially in the red states. And I ask a question for you. Do you think that contributes that people have perceived they have nothing to lose, so they'll take bigger risks? Absolutely. And uh, you raised so many great, great points. Sorry, uh, yes. The more, you know, the more recent work in, in prospect theory has shown, like there's research showing the efficacy of certain training in changing some of those biases. And, you know, in a lot of the, the earlier conversations about that, it was that, okay, here's, here's how people do this and here's how people do that. But in reality, there's a huge variety in how much more loss averse someone might be compared to someone else. And that goes back to the risk fingerprint and the risk profile. So as the risk profile, you, you might think of the decisions that you've made, you know, all those crazy things that you've done, the, you know, the decisions that the, the Chinese and the American subjects in the, in the experiment I mentioned, you know, those were the choices that they made. So that is like, if you imagine a wine glass at a crime scene, you imagine what get, gets left on the glass. That's mm -hmm. the risk profile. That's the thing that the world sees that identifies you. Your risk fingerprint is all of the factors that went into that imprint being made. And mm -hmm. just like a real fingerprint, it includes three elements that, that explain some of this difference that we've been talking about. So the first is your innate personality. So that's like the, 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 the whirls and the loops and the arches, the things that are genetically determined that you just can't change. I mean, it's why a fingerprint is such a great biometric indicator. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can be calm or anxious in face of risk. You can be, you know, impulsive or methodical. There's a great tool I love called the risk type compass that helps mm -hmm. to measure this. You might, you might be more inclined to think, look at long-term risks or, or short-term risks. And so that's who you are. So that interacts with the second part of the risk fingerprint, which is your experiences and your environment. So for example, you are cooking and you cut your finger with a knife that leaves a scar. It's an indelible mark, just like on a real fingerprint that would show it. But people respond in very different ways. One person will say, I never want anything more dangerous than a spork ever again. And the other person says, well, I survived that. You know, no big deal. I want to be a sushi chef. You know, so, so there's this, you know, interaction and you don't control all of your experiences. There are lots of things. And, and that also includes what, what risks you've taken that have worked out well, which ones that, mm -hmm. that not so much, the, you know, what you're, you know, how you were raised. I mean, I, I grew up in a family where my mom and dad had very, very different risk fingerprints. And so it's probably why I'm so obsessed with it now. The third part is really where I spend time. And it's, it's the training, it's the environment that you create for yourself, uh, particularly your, your peer group. It's the knowledge that you pursue. It's the self-awareness that you have. It's the mindfulness that you bring to any risk that you might 
take. And some of this is wild. After I finished the book, there was some research that came out that said a Tylenol can make you more risk-seeking or you know, the day of the week. But there are things like the, uh, the tempo of the music. You know, if you, if you speed too much, like do not play Green Day. That's not going to work for you. Spicy food. There are lots of stereotypes around people who like spicy food being risk seekers. And it's actually true. There's research that shows that for, I forget what it is, a few hours after you eat spicy food, you're actually going to be more risk tolerant than mm. otherwise. Temperature, so cooler temperatures. I mean, it smells. So uh, this is amusing because uh, that means that all of every day, I'm, I have a higher risk tolerance because of what I eat. I eat spicy stuff all the time. Bring that so. Tabasco bottle with you everywhere, or the, the habanero, even better. So there are all these things that you can control. The, uh, you know, do you have around you people who can give you a a really informed perspective on whatever thing that you are considering? Do they have the knowledge? Do they have risk fingerprints that are different from yours? If you are the person who leaps before you look, do you have a chatty best friend who can tell you, let's take three deep breaths before we decide to do this? Or vice versa, if you hate jaywalking, me, <laughs> you know, I mean, I will only do it if the if the street is really, really clear. I'm not sure if that's technically jaywalking, if there's not a lot of traffic or not, but you know, I, um, I need le- someone to hold my hand. It is. Legally, it is, but legally, exactly. It's why all these New Yorkers get tickets when they go to, to LA. But, you know, there's some things where you really, you, you need a wingman or you need someone to, mm-hmm. to help you with it. There are processes, there are habits. And, you know, it's like umbrellas is one of my favorite things. You know, you see the, the forecast and there are some people who will see 30% of rain. Oop, I better bring the umbrella. The other, there are other people who go, not going to rain. And there are other ones who take their umbrella because they're superstitious, make sure it's not going to rain. And, uh, you know, so, you know, I, the I risk of getting wet changes. Exactly. Exactly. I have a, a, a weather knee that I pay attention to for uh, whether it's going to rain or, or not. But so you can change your environment. You can change your training. You can change your preparation. And that will affect whether you're making good risk decisions or not. And you can apply this risk fingerprint concept to organizational culture, or even to a nation, society, region. They're, they're different things. But similarly, the, you know, the innate, the experience, and then the what you do about it. And the empathy part is understanding other people's perceptions so that you can actually start communicating effectively about stuff, right? It and this is- breaks down log jams like that you didn't even know existed. Yeah. It's, it's, it is interesting because I've spent a lot of my career articulating risks really clearly. Like Kahneman talks about pre-mortems, you know, and, and I, I, and I spent a bunch of time yesterday with Ben Fluvberg. Uh, by the way, he, he claims I'm an, an honorary Dane because I actually pronounced his name close enough. <laughs> Good for you. That's <laughs> not, it's not easy. It's not an intuitive name. F-L-Y-V-B-J-E-R-G. Fluvberg. Well so, done. I took me a while and I had to ask one of his, the people in his firm, but I think I got there. Anyway, the question there for, for, as you define risks, I I, want to just briefly go back to black swans versus gray rhinos, because to articulate the way I'm thinking of it right now, which may still be incorrect, despite having read all these books and talked to people and getting direct feedback from you on how I'm thinking about gray rhinos, 
I think of gray rhinos as a strategic risk and black swans more as a tactical risk. And some of this is influenced by talking, be, being a projects guy, had mm -hmm. a global tech project career, and talking to Ben Flugberg, who's a global projects guy, I'm thinking of them in terms of projects. So this may be warping, you know, halo effect from recent thinking. And so the strategic stuff is what should we be paying attention to? And I think gray rhinos are stuff we should be paying attention to, but usually aren't. Whereas black swans are, as we try to deal with that, what things could screw up our dealing with it? What are the fat tail distribution, unexpected events, which could throw us off? And how do we cut the tail in Fluidbeard's terminology or pick things with thin tails? You know, uh, you haven't seen his most recent research, I, I doubt. Fascinating stuff. Wind, solar farms, and transmission, once they the shovel hits the ground, they almost always succeed on time, on budget, and deliver benefits. Nuclear- wow, A bunch of local uh, governments and, and boondogglers would have trouble with that. Nuclear. So there's 25 categories of projects in a 16,000 project data set. Nuclear takes up two of the three bottom categories with, with the Olympics. So there's only five, which wow. five categories, which are typically on time, on budget and delivering benefits. And that's wind, solar and transmission, which is great news from a climate perspective. Absolutely. But in that context, climate change is the gray rhino we need to be dealing with. What's the strategy? The long tail, the fat tail distribution risks that can disrupt our actions is the tactical decision-making factor, which enables us to choose things with fewer black swans in the mix, or to find ways to minimize and degrade, de you know, reduce the black swans in those projects. And you know, some of that is just compress the time frame. So that's why I'm thinking of it right now. How do you think about that as a way of thinking about them? Couple differences. One. Sure. You know, I said fat tails are different from black swans because you can imagine fat tails. Anything you can imagine ahead of time is by definition not a black swan. You can only see black swans in the rearview mirror. You can't see them in front of you. And, and that's part of the reason it drives me crazy when people come and ask me, was XYZ a gray rhino? And they want to talk only in the past. And that's great for case studies. But what I really want people to be doing is, is looking ahead of them. So that's one difference. And, you know, I think fat tails, perhaps you could say are combining, you know, gray rhino and black swan, even though you are looking ahead, which is not really what, what black swan is, is about. It's, it's really about recognizing that you could be surprised and you don't know what those elements are. So how do you build one, a more resilient organization or approach? And two, how do you create a situation that benefits from volatility. And, and my sense is you get a bunch of people to think about black swans because uh, the, they can then you know, trade volatility and have an excuse for, <laughs> for when things don't go well. So I think that's part of it. The other thing is I think once, you know, once the black swan hits, it's all you've got time for is tactical thinking because you're dealing with it when it's right there. And the gray rhino is about looking at how you might respond to something. It's about understanding your capacity. Uh, people really want to focus on the, the spotting, the identifying. And so we're, we're, you know, in January, how many top risks lists have you seen come out that you, you can't count? There are more and more and more every year. And everyone's like, I made my list. And then, it, you know, 
springtime comes and people forget about the list and that's it. But they they don't often enough go to the next stage, which is to think about, okay, how could this happen? How could this affect my company in say best case, worst case and middle most likely scenarios? Okay, how are we equipped to deal with this? And thinking about that both in, in short, medium and long-term and making sure that you allocate enough of your thinking to the, the medium and long-term possibilities and not just dangers, but opportunities. You know, One of the opportunities is that if you are paying attention and prepared for one of these great rhino risks when it decides to, to snort and trumple you, you are ahead of the other guys. And, you know, another one is how do you solve the problem? I mean, you know, every single VC, what do they want at the top of the pitch deck? What's the problem you're solving for, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you identify the problem and you have some sort of solution to it, you're also ahead of other people because not only are you avoiding the costs of whatever the thing happening and you're not being prepared, uh, you're also actually leaning into it and using, using its strength uh, for something. And, you know, fat tails are, are somewhere in there. I think, it, you know, they're really good scenario tool, but black swans are for reminding yourself that you don't know what's in front of you. And gray rhinos are for helping you plan for the things that are in front of you, but you, you don't know all the details. You don't have a, a precise uh, prediction and actually mm -hmm. whose outcome you can change. Okay. So risk fingerprints, risk empathy. I I've, you know, preloaded you with a scenario to a couple of scenarios to discuss, because I think it'll be interesting. And, and I, it gets into why we haven't dealt effectively with the what I still consider the gray rhino of climate change, why we didn't preemptively deal with it. And so it's the risk, the risk fingerprint and empathy about a bunch of different stakeholder groups related to climate change. And you can pick the time frame. It might, based on our discussion, you might go back to the 90s or the early 2000s or something. But you know, how would you consider the risk fingerprint of the general public related to climate change? You know, what would be the empathy way you would articulate that? Well, I think people, people see risks in very different ways. And that depends partly on, on their situation. Are they living right on top of a lake or a river or in a, in a place like that, that community in, in Arizona that got its water turned off uh, recently mm -hmm. because there wasn't enough of it? But also the information that you get, and you can consider this as the, you know, the environment, some of the information that you're bombarded with, you don't have a choice about, but you also, in, in the third part of the risk fingerprint, you do have the option to go and find certain information. So some mm -hmm. of the information you get is involuntary and some of it is voluntary. It also depends on how you, how you frame risks and mm -hmm. how you see them falling out. Now, obviously the fossil fuel industry sees as a big risk that people are not going to keep buying their stuff. And that's actually one of the examples. What would be the risk profile for the fossil fuel industry? And then what would that imply about how they would perceive it? And bang, that's exactly it. They perceive the risk very differently than you or I do. Yeah. So their risk profiles, they go and they, they you know, bury reports and, you know, those are the, the, the decisions that, that most of them have made. And the risk fingerprint is that you know, they, well, first of all, the, you know, fossil fuels have gotten so many subsidies over the history of fossil fuels. Um, and still do. 
and still do considerably more than, than renewables, actually. A friend of mine wrote some time ago that if you wanted to make huge progress, just get rid of the fossil fuel sub- subsidies so that the, the clean energy is just on a level playing field. And the G20 and the G7 committed to that in 2009. And China's actually made progress. Canada made a little progress. United States has made zero progress as an example of differentiators across it. And partly that's because they're really embedded and hard to unpack. I've spent a lot of time looking at this and, oh my God, the lobbyists and the regulators and the company, they just go back and forth in this and they just create little line items in all sorts of different budgets. So just figuring out what's, and and then this, the risk perceptions stuff, the differences of opinion, that's not a subsidy. That's economic development. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, it's fascinating to me. I've, I've spent a little bit of time in, uh, you know, in Middle Eastern countries, mm-hmm. that some of which are very dependent on oil, and being very, very surprised to hear that one of the things that keeps them up at night is the obsolescence of oil. And mm-hmm. I've been very surprised to see how much attention some of these countries are paying to clean energy and clean technologies. And if you look at the risks differently. I mean, one of the risks of the transition is is stranded assets. But there are also some people who say, look, there are times when you're still going to need some fossil fuels for continuity. I'm like, Mm -hmm. okay, the opportunity here is a much higher margin product and much lower volume. Like that's actually, (laughs) that's a good deal, right? And you look at the the subsidies and stuff and and you, you look at incentives, and if I understand that, that the devil's in the details, it's very hard to do. But what if you say, okay, we're only subsidizing the clean stuff right now? Mm. You know, how do you create different incentives? Well, you, you know, public policy and subsidies is a huge incentive. You know, what's good, mm-hmm. what's good tax policy is that you subsidize, well, you, you tax things you want less of, and you either don't tax or subsidized, depending on your political persuasion, things that you do want more of. And if you look at tax policy through through that lens, through externalities, we would have completely different tax structures. And we also, in my view, could have much lower taxes because we get taxed twice, really, for, for the bad things. You know, oh, we're subsidizing yeah. fossil. We're we're paying for the subsidies, and then we're paying for the the cleanup, the emissions, the health costs, the, all these other things. So if oh, yeah, you the, really um, start am, looking you, at the allocation of resources, it's you know it's it's a very different thing. I also think about you know opportunities in the shift to to clean energy for uh, you know for fossil fuel companies. Well, they've got an awful lot of knowledge and experience in looking at trends and who consumes energy and where and how you're connected to certain distribution networks and things like that. If there are lots of opportunities there, and if we were to really go through a, a green clean tech transition for energy, there are so many opportunities for them to be way ahead of everybody else in that. And, you know, before this, the, the, the worry was, you know, peak oil and that the reserves are going to start disappearing and things like that. You know, let's say we continue with, with fossil fuel consumption the way we are. Well, that's going to be a problem at some point anyway. So why don't they switch to something that 
that right now could put them on a better in a better direction. And, and this is a dynamic we see a lot with a lot of legacy in, industries. You know, one of my favorite examples is, is Kodak. You know, they invented the digital camera, but they said, no, that's going to cannibalize too much of our existing business. And that didn't end up so well for them. So the, you know, the risk of relying too much on your is existing revenue stream without a plan for switching to something that is the future, you know, that's that's a risk too. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I spend a lot of time on this. Um, you know, right now, major analysts and you know are projecting peak oil demand in the second half of this decade. Like we hit peak coal in 2013, we've had a little blip with the energy crisis in China or in uh, Europe. Uh, this brought it back to those levels, but we stopped increasing coal a long time ago, and we're going to stop increasing oil demand and have it start diminish. You know, in the next decade. Similarly, natural gas is going to peak around the mid 30s, 20, 1930s. And so you kind of like look at that and say, well, how is that going to change? Like high cost, uh, poor quality suppliers like Alberta next door to me in Canada with the oil sands, they're going to be impacted first. But everybody's going to be impacted. And to your point, let's take, um, I, I, I list through the, I, I look at the lens of how fossil, major fossil fuel companies are dealing with this transition. And I look at Orsted. Do you know Orsted? No. Used to, be, used to be Dong Energy, which is, you know, I think Orsted is a much better name. But Dong Energy and made the decision and renamed themselves because they went from being a major fossil fuel company, and now they don't do that. They divested that. They're an offshore wind developer. They've transitioned to modern energy and leverage their offshore capabilities and knowledge, the skills they developed as an oil and gas firm to do offshore wind. There are parallel things. Similarly, I make a strong, I make a repeated, mostly falling on deaf ears case for transitioning coal workers to build pumped hydro because pumped hydro geography is usually coal geography. They're there, they know how to burrow tunnels through rock. It's energy. It's kind of got a lot of psychological benefits as well as social benefits. But yeah, it, it's interesting as we look through that, how they did it. And, and to be clear, one of the things about the fossil fuel companies, you mentioned this, they looked at it and they made a decision to lean into our psychological traits to ignore gray rhinos by spreading disinformation, doubt, and diverting us doubt. into other things. Yeah. This is the interesting question for me because gray rhinos, you make a clear point throughout the book that we keep ignoring them, like our, our weight, you know, like drinking too much, like smoking, stuff we know is going to have long-term implications. So maybe just spend a little bit of time characterizing the kind of things where other people or other organizations are forcing, are pushing us away from paying attention to them, what we can do about that. Yeah, well, you know, Merchants of Doubt is such a great book about this sort of manufactured denial, you know, they're really leaning into people's tendency to deny things. And it's, it's often hard to convince people It often takes really an outside event. You know, I'm thinking about COVID, actually, how mm -hmm. that really changed so many people's priorities. Mm -hmm. And there were all these stories about, oh, you know, people, people are taking bigger risks, quitting their jobs. And I don't see it that way at all. I'm mm -hmm. seeing that they have changed the way they think about risks mm -hmm. in that, you know, they see as the, as a bigger risk, 
you know, working for the man, working for a company where their boss might change and everything, everything changes and they're not happy there anymore. Uh, think about the opportunities of changing jobs. And this particularly for women, I hear that you know, pe- if people stay too long in the same job, they are missing chances to, to get a salary bump and things like that. And COVID's really changed people's priorities. I, you saw people adopt dogs and cats. And, and I mean, for me, it's also changed. I mean, before the pandemic, I spent my, my, um, I made my living flying around the world with like horrible carbon emissions, even when you offset them. And, and it's, you know, the time sitting in the plane, the time prepping and the time rehearsing. And I, I, I've actually been putting my efforts towards setting up a lot more local activities and keeping my feet on the ground. And it's, it's not just the health part of the pandemic, but it's like, you know, what's, what do I really want to do? Where, where am I doing things best? So Mm -hmm. often the best motivating factors, ones that sometimes we, you know, we don't think of enough, Mm -hmm. but governments can also help, you know, we talked about the taxes and subsidies. Uh, You look at a lot of people who are now thinking about getting heat pumps or about Mm -hmm. switching to electric vehicles. You look at some of the towns that have made public transportation free. Mm-hmm. So I think that there are, are you know, nudges or shoves <laughs> that governments can do to get people to do things. And, and you know, it, companies do things all the time to influence people's behavior. You know, here's a coupon, you know, get your first three orders free, get this, get that. So they, they do use that sort of psychology, but for, for purchasing particular things. And I saw something somewhere on Mastodon or something a, a week or two ago that drove me nuts. Somebody was posting that it, it made their blood boil that all of these companies had done these personal carbon footprint campaigns to mm-hmm. take the responsibility off of themselves and put it onto the individuals. And they were so mad about mm-hmm. that. And I want to, okay, first of all, companies can't sell those kind of products. They can't sell cleaner products to people unless people want them. And mm-hmm. is it a bad thing that people are taking more personal responsibility? I don't think so. And by getting yourself all worked up over this, you're basically giving yourself a really good excuse to not take responsibility yourself. So it drives me absolutely nuts. You know, okay, whatever their motives, I think it's a good thing that companies were promoting this because it is creating demand for things that there might not be demand for. And I go, I just go crazy when I see these articles about, oh, well, you know, reducing meat in your diet isn't going to make a big difference because blah, 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 blah. Again, the message is you have no impact. You have no agency. You have no responsibility when that's not the case. I mean, we can't afford to have individuals or businesses or governments slacking on climate change. And this message of it's someone else's responsibility is is very, very dangerous, no matter who is talking about it. We need to be talking about shared responsibility for climate crisis. And also, you know, when you're sharing responsibility, that actually gives you a, you know, a safety net, sort of a peer group, the sense that you're part of something, there's a belonging that helps to accelerate things. So, you know, there's some things that, that, there are a lot of things that companies can do that that do encourage people to make 
decisions differently. And even, you know, investors pressing companies to be more sustainable or companies pressing their suppliers to meet certain standards. Forcing people to do smaller packages with less air. Yeah, I would be so for that. They did it. Yeah. Walmart was the big as the biggest purchaser in the world, shrunk the carbon footprint of a whole bunch of their stuff tremendously. Yeah. You know, as an intentional choice. Uh, I, I want to touch on something because there's an interesting question here. I took far too long to actually re- listen to or, you know, the actual book, The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. I read the blurbs like 30 years ago, but I didn't read the book. So I was actually going down to Vermont to assist a renewable energy and storage developer with the, their annual strategy offsite and you know project forward into the future where the big hitters would be help them understand what things they you know, where they could exploit today's hype for hydrogen for example versus other stuff and i was listening to the seven habits of highly successful people and the the thing that struck me out of what you were just saying was the uh he, he potentially misattributes it but he says there is a gap between the stimulus and your response. And all you control is what you choose to do in that gap and how you respond. And so the articulation to paraphrase what you're saying, I mean, I'm personally on the side of the companies are intelligently dealing with the risk by downloading the responsibility of the consumers. And it annoys me. Um, That's true. But the secondary part is you're articulating, we can choose what to do about that. And so I think that particular habit, choosing what to do in that gap and their response is where you're leaning into. Absolutely. And you bring up a really important point, which, which is touched on briefly in You Are What You Risk, but that I'm hoping to do a lot more work on, which is the, the distribution of the risk, of, of mm-hmm. the benefits and the burdens. I mean, Mariana Matsukadro, whose work I just adore, does a lot about this. She's like, you know, here's these, you know, governments taking these, making these moonshot investments and, you know, companies get all the profit and the taxpayers are paid with it. Or you see the stories in, in the news right now about pharmaceuticals wanting to charge a lot of money for COVID vaccines when it costs, you know, two, three bucks to make them. And they were able to do that because the government poured tons of money into that. And, you know, you look at all kinds of things or say, jobs. That's one of the biggest areas. The, uh, the, there's a huge, large and very growing part of the workforce that's solopreneurs, it's the gig economy people, and there's mm-hmm. a raging debate over whether they should be you know, employees or contractors, blah, blah, blah. And to me, that whole debate completely misses the point because I, one of the solutions being promoted, okay, you have to consider this, this person as an employee. And I don't want to be an employee because companies demand certain things of their employees that are often, you know, not right, whether it's intellectual property or what relationships you can have or non-competing agreements or whatever. I think that there there should be, you know, a third way where people who are independent can get a much better risk umbrella for themselves, that the health insurance, the life insurance, the, you know, the kinds of protections that they need you know, stronger uh, unemployment insurance. And, you know, with, with unemployment insurance too, they say, okay, you, we're only going to pay you if you are applying for regular jobs. Well, what if you don't want a regular job? What are you, if you're doing a startup? And so I think that whole system 
where companies are the ones who often provide healthcare and other parts of this risk umbrella doesn't work. I was just reading a story about uh, Twitter and talking about, uh, there was a quote about how many of the people who were staying were, were just staying because they needed health insurance. Yep. And it's not good for companies either. Do you want yep. the employee who's just staying for health insurance or do you want the one who's there because they they like it? And I mean, well, I think Twitter wants anyone who will stay for whatever reason at this point. But I think we need a much bigger conversation really about uh, about how we provide the risk umbrella that individuals need. And I think if we do that, it could be a lot more productive for companies and for workers. You know, if you are an employee, you change jobs, you change health insurance, you have to check if all your doctors are in the plan or not. There's a three-month waiting period or whatever. And it's it's completely inefficient and mm-hmm. not fun for, for anyone. It's not fun for the doctors, it's not fun for the patients, and yep. not fun for the employers. And uh, so that question about who carries the risk and who benefits from it, you know, you've seen this expression, the uh, what is it privatizing the profits and socializing the risk? Mm-hmm. A heck of a lot of that. And that speaks directly to externalities you know, from mm-hmm. fossil fuels. You know, it's a big, big, big example of people are making profits from the risk that they're dumping on other people and that other people are are paying for. Well, it, yeah, it's, it's interesting just to lean into that a little bit in the last couple of minutes, because we've only got like four minutes left. And I want to respect your time. I, I deal with the availability bias, back to cognitive science and Kahneman. And, you know, all those articulations are very much top of mind for people in the United States, but very much not top of mind for people in most of the rest of the developed world. The balance of risk for the individual is quite radically different. And I looked at um, universal basic income, which, you know, was actually part of the Democratic nomination policy discussions. I'd like to say that there are these really great broad policy debates between right and left, between different economic perspectives that occurred in the run-up to the 2020 election. And there were the Democratic primaries. <laughs> you, know, you had uh, Andrew Yang promoting universal basic income, and you had other people who were just in very different places. It was a fast, and Bernie Sanders was over here. And of course, now I'm reading Noam Chomsky, and that's just, I just finished some two books of Noam Chomsky, and it's like, oh my God. Anyway, that difference of availability bias, those articulations you made, are very specific to the country and the jurisdiction, and there's very different things. And yeah, the United States is an outlier in the developed world in a lot of those things. But that said, I always like to leave an open-ended opportunity at the end of these discussions. We've had a broad-ranging discussion. We've talked to a lot of, a lot of thinkers, talked about your thinking, Nassim Taleb's thinking, talked about the kind of differences in how humans behave at different times and their agency in learning how to behave better around, especially around gray rhinos. But you've got a big audience. You've got you know, 50% United States and 50% global. You, know, you have a, a moment just to speak about anything you want to that audience. What would you say? What will you say? It's uh, such a great question. You know, I think it's the, it's really about awareness that we make 35,000 give or take choices every single day. Every single one of those choices is a risk. Every single risk is a choice. You know, the way annual top risk lists are framed, notwithstanding. But 
people don't think about what's going into those decisions and why they're making them and how the whole environment around them affects that. I think it's so important for policymakers to think about what are the things that they could do to encourage more smart risk taking, you know, starting businesses, mm-hmm. investing in education, things like that, and discourage bad risk taking, the, you know, the, the moral hazard, the speculation, the, the safety violations, the things like that. So how does that policy framework uh, act? And for people, you know, in democracies, but to be honest, also in, in more authoritarian countries where there is often more of a feedback loop between government and people than, than people in the Western world want to admit. But, you know, how does the environment around you shape your individual choices? And, you know, how do you communicate to the people making decisions that, you know, maybe there's a better way to, you know, to do it? And then in your, in your personal choices, how do those affect the people around you? Uh, why are your decisions different from other people? You know, one of the, the questions I get a lot of laughs at is how much time do you leave to go to the airport? Now you've got a business colleague and, you know, you're, for expense reports, you've got to take that cab to the airport together and they've got a completely different idea. If you can talk about why you have those different ideas, you can come to some sort of agreement much more easily than otherwise. And mm-hmm. in any sort of relationship, once you start talking about why something's important, what you see the risk as, it's much easier to, to come together. So I guess I guess I really say a, a consciousness of the reasons why you're taking risks, of what those choices say to other people in the world about you, and how you might better optimize your environment so that you can make better choices based on your past experiences and your innate personality. Thank you so much. So this is Clean Tech Talks. I'm your host, um, Michael Bernard, and my guest today has been Michelle Walker. She is the international best-selling author of The Gray Rhino, and her new book is We Are What We Risk, which is a more personal perspective and leans into individual agency about understanding how we behave with risk. Michelle, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a fascinating conversation. Likewise, such great questions and such great material. So I hope your your listeners enjoy it as as much as uh, I have. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. (laughs) 